Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now when we came to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we weren't there last week. So if you weren't here last week, you haven't missed any part of this series. But when we came to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and we, bega- we began to dive into this last section of this letter. It's busted into three parts. Chapters 10 to the end is the last section where Paul is going to challenge false teachers, deal with some of the rebels in the church. And, it, and basically, you know, Paul is going to enforce the legitimacy of his ministry as an apostle commissioned by Christ to go out to the Gentiles. And so in chapter 10, Paul told us a few things. He told us how to wage spiritual warfare. He told us how to use spiritual authority. And he told us how to measure ministry. How do we put a spiritual measurement to ministry? Now, one of the accusations that was going uh, and floating around in Corinth regarding Paul was this question. That they were questioning the legitimacy of his love for God or for God's people. Did he really love the church? And so, you know, what, what does a guy do when he's questioned like that? I mean, what, what would we expect Paul to do? Is he going to brag? Is he? <laughs> thank you. Is he going to brag about his great work? Because that never goes well, does it? Is he, is he going to just say nothing? Well, the false teachers would certainly play on that. And so how is Paul going to go about and convince this church that he loves them? And so he starts this conversation, and as he does, he says, please bear with me. Check it out, verse 1. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Now, it's not because this defense of Paul and his ministry and his apostleship is foolish or stupid that Paul calls it foolishness, but it's because he does not want to enter into this conversation. That's what he's saying. I really don't want to enter into this conversation. There's a sense of reluctance, knowing that his time and his energy and his words could be used for more useful things. But his credentials, so to speak, are being so questioned by this church that it's important that they understand him and they understand his heart. And so the first thing Paul is going to do as he begins to defend his ministry is to share his jealousy. Now that's a weird thing to think that he would defend himself by sharing the jealousness of his own heart. But he is not going to talk about jealousy on a human level as we understand jealousy. He's going to talk about it as divine godly jealousy for the church and for God's people. Look at verse 2. He says this. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now before we try to wrap our heads around what divine jealousy is, we, we kind of got to get a picture of what is going on here as Paul says, I have betrothed you to one husband to be a pure virgin. Because betrothal is something that is totally foreign to our culture, but it was well known in ancient times. So what is betrothal? When he says that, when I have espoused you, I've betrothed you, what is he saying? Well, betrothal in ancient cultures was kind of like engagement. It was this period of time before marriage where a contract was put in place. The bride was selected, the groom was selected, and, uh, 
the task of bringing them together was undertaken by the parents of the bride and a friend of the bridegroom. He would basically, this friend of the bridegroom would be like an agent. And they would enter into this contract, almost like a matchmaker, so to speak. Enter into this contract and this agent, this friend, would negotiate the terms. Uh, the price of the betrothal would be made, as you see in the Bible. Gifts would be given to the bride's family. And then this whole agreement as it came into place would be celebrated by a feast. In some instances, it was customary that they would give a ring or some expression or token of love and fidelity. Now in the Hebrew uh, custom and culture, betrothal was actually part of the marriage process. It had to happen before a Hebrew couple could enter into marriage. And Basically, I mean, if there was a change of intention on either the part of the future groom or the future bride, a certificate of divorce had to be issued because the time of betrothal was so significant. The most important instance of that in scripture is who? Mary and Joseph. Remember Mary and Joseph betrothed to one another? She was found to be with child. And Joseph had it, in, they're not married, but he had it in his mind to quietly give her a certificate of divorce until uh, the Lord intervened. And so a betrothal usually lasted for a period of one year, like an engagement, sort of, so to speak. And um, during that time, the couple would be known as husband and wife, but they did not have the right to have uh, sexual union to be united sexually but the marriage would take place and the, the groom would come and the marriage would be consummated now here's the picture that Paul is painting for us to understand we know from scripture the church is called what? the bride of Christ Christ has purchased for himself with his blood that he shed on the cross his church and as the church, as the bride of Christ corporately, we are in this time of betrothal with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. The return of Christ where the scripture tells us Jesus will come again and he will take his church to be with him to heaven. And there, there will be a great marriage feast and, and it'll all be consummated in that time. And for generations, the church has been looking for the coming of the bridegroom. For generations, while the church waits for the coming of Christ, she's participated in a feast, uh, a meal, a sacrament that looks back to the time when she was purchased and looks forward to the time when Christ comes. It's the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. And Jesus, you know, as I want to remind you from the Gospels, told, him, told his disciples this, I will not eat of this supper, the, the last supper, until it is in heaven, this marriage meal. And so the church is in this time of waiting, betrothed, espoused, waiting for Jesus to come and take us to be where he is. Remember uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be 
where I am also. The church is the bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom. Now why does that matter? What the heck is Paul talking about? Well, in his heart, Paul had made a commitment to the Lord to be the friend of the bridegroom. The agent of the bridegroom. By the call of God, he had been appointed to undertake the role of the friend who represents the bridegroom. And as his agent, Paul is saying, it is my job to ensure that the bride remained faithful on her part to her future groom. And Paul wanted to protect the bride from anyone who would seek to take advantage of her while she was waiting for the coming of her bridegroom. See, Paul was in a position of trust. That's what he's telling this church. He's a friend of Jesus. He has the task of ensuring uh, the bride's faithfulness to her groom. He has the task of protecting the bride from those who had other plans for her. And in Corinth, there were those who had plans for the bride. They were false teachers. And those false teachers had their own design for the bride of Christ. To take advantage of her. To use her for their own ends. They were not using, as we saw in chapter 10, their authority to build the church. Rather, they were using the church to build their authority. And in doing so, they were calling into question a man who was a friend of the bridegroom. But Paul says this, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You know, on the wedding day, when those Corinthians stood before Jesus, Paul wanted to stand there too, knowing that he had done his best to help the bride keep her purity. Now, the friend of the bride and the bridegroom had a special job in Jewish culture. He was, uh, what's that word? Interkinesio or whatever. He was the, the go-between the, uh, the messenger, the one who delivers the love notes back and forth. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it. I, re- I remember when I, uh, I was a kid, a bunch of us from Gibson's here went over to the New Bay camp and we went to kids camp and we weren't teenagers, but, you know, we were old enough that us, us boys were noticing and the girls and it was a camp situation. And so, you know, there was a couple little romances going on and Different people had the task of delivering the notes back and forth. <laughs> Remember that when you're in elementary school? It's a lot of fun. And uh, we all took nicknames in our room. And I just remember the one nickname. It was this kid. We called him Bacon because he was skinny and long like a piece of bacon. And um, we got it in our minds that we'd write a love note from Bacon to a particular girl. And so we took that note and we delivered it to her unbeknownst to him. And then we came back to the cabin and we were giggling and laughing about it. A whole group of boys talking about this great prank prank that we had played. And little did we know that on the other side of the wall, hearing the whole conversation was our pastor, Pastor Ted Boodle. And Pastor Ted made us go back and get that note. And we paid the price for our... uh, our funny behavior. Now the friend of the bridegroom functioned in that role to be uh, the messenger who carried back and forth messages from her to him and from him to her. Because before marriage, this time of betrothal, the relationship was strictly, strictly guarded. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church as a friend of the bridegroom, 
I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, what guarded Paul in that role? What guarded his heart? Well, he said, it's this. It's a divine jealousy that guards me in this role. I have a divine jealousy for you. Now, I hear those words divine and jealousy, and to me, that does, it, it doesn't add up. What is that? What is the difference between human jealousy and divine jealousy? See, jealousy is a, a feeling of envy for someone's possessions or for their achievements. It's a, it's a covetous thing. Jealousy, when we talk about that on a human side, it, it reveals the negative side of the human nature and the human heart. You know, human jealousy is a vice. But Paul's jealousy for the church was not sourced in his humanity. Rather, it was sourced in God. See, whereas human jealousy is a vice, godly jealousy, divine jealousy is a virtue. That's for me, tell him I'm busy. That's okay. I'm just teasing. You know, we often don't think of jealousy as godly. But one of the things that we learn from Scripture very early on in the book of G Genesis is this. Is that God is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. God is jealous for our hearts. In the Ten Commandments, he, he told his people, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, the, the whole basis for our happiness, the whole basis for our holiness is centered on our loyalty to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And the church is called to be as a pure virgin in the loyalty of her hearts. See, a divided heart leads to a defiled life and a destroyed relationship. See, human jealousy is selfish. Human jealousy is self-centered. Human jealousy overpowers the rights of others. Human jealousy is blind to the happiness of others. It leads to the ruin of others. As long as it gets what it desires, that's what human jealousy is. Full of selfish desire. See, the difference between human jealousy and divine jealousy becomes clear when you hear it like this. Listen to this. God is not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. God is not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. And there's a big difference there, isn't there? God's jealousy is a concern for his people's holiness, a concern for their integrity, a concern for their purity, and God will not put up with any rival for your affections. Not because he is full of selfish greed to possess you as his own, but because God knows that holiness and things like integrity and purity are produced in our lives only when we are surrendered and submitted to the purposes of God. Your holiness... Your happiness are dependent upon your submission and surrender to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you and Jesus is the perfect fit. And Jesus does not want you to direct your affections to anything that you, dis that, that you will discover won't fit. You know, if you get to know me a little bit,
one of the things that you will discover about me is that I have a little bit of a shoe fetish. And I come by it honestly because they say the apple doesn't far fall from the tree. Does it, mother? You know, we went to Israel five years ago, and for 10 days, I think my mom had eight pairs of shoes with her. And now my daughter has a bit of a shoe fetish. And I'm almost as bad as my mom. Now, one of the things I hate about buying shoes is this. I'm not a size 11, and I'm not a size 12. I'm 11 and a half. Okay, I'm 11 and a half. And the problem with that is this, if you're a half size. In Canada, most of the shoes, they don't stock the half sizes. Drives you crazy. And so I prefer to buy my shoes online, or I go down to the States, and that's when I buy my shoes. But every once in a while, you know, I jump the gun, and I go and I buy the pair of shoes, and I get the too small shoe or the too big shoe. Does that ever happen to you? Drive you crazy. You know, if it's too small, your toes are squished. You get blisters on the back of the heel, whatever it might be. Or if you go with the shoe that's too big, it's like you feel like you're walking around in flippers. And so let's just say this. I get, I get so obsessive and compulsive about this that... Um, I can get very indecisive in my shoe buying. And so, you know, when we went to Florida, I found this Nike shoe store this past fall that was down in, in Orlando, and uh, it was off the charts awesome. And uh, I was walking around the store with three pairs of shoes in my hand. I, I had a pair of runners, a pair of sneakers, and a pair of casuals. And I was just hoping my wife would let me buy all three pairs of shoes because I had found a rare pair of Nike ruckus midsoles that were in an awesome color pattern and I'd found this other anyways it's a problem <laughs> and I'd already bought one pair of shoes that week and so she wasn't gonna let me buy three more pairs of shoes so you know I'm letting you into my little demented world to illustrate a point the importance of a right fit See, in this life, you can try and fit yourself with all sorts of things. Possessions, religion, people, relationships, habits, hobbies. You can discard one of those things for the new latest and the greatest. And you need to know this. There is one perfect fit for your life. And it's found in the person of God's son. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not jealous of you. Jesus is jealous for you. He is jealous for your affections. He is jealous for your surrender. He is jealous for your submission to his purposes. Now Paul, the true apostle that he was, true in his love for God and true in his love for God's people, true in his role as a friend of the bridegroom, Shared in the divine jealousy of God for the hearts of God's church. And he said, I betrothed you. Literally this, like a carpenter's work of joinery, this is a perfect relationship. Literally like the arranging of musical notes on a piece of paper or the tuning of an instrument or the fitting of clothes or the fitting of armor. 
There is a harmony that exists between the human heart and Christ as the human heart is surrendered that is unsurpassed and unmatched. And so in observing what was happening in the Corinthian church and from this heart of divine jealousy, Paul shares some fears. He begins to share what is making him afraid. Check out verse three. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What was Paul afraid of? Was Paul afraid of his name being dragged through the mud? Was he afraid of his credentials, God forbid, being questioned? Was he afraid of accusations? Was he afraid people would leave the church no, none of those things caused Paul to fear. One thing made him fear, and it was this. That God's people would be satanically seduced from the simplicity of the gospel. Satanic seduction of, from the simplicity of the gospel. You see, the gospel is so simple, right? I mean, the message of the cross and the message of what Jesus Christ has done for the sinful human heart and what he does for the heart that is surrendered, it's, it's, it's so simple. So simple that our children understand it. So simple and yet, you know, so profound. You know, on Thursday nights, uh, I, I do some discipleship stuff at my house with a small group of guys and uh, we've been memorizing some scripture. We've been memorizing, We've just finished memorizing 12 verses. Romans 3.23, Isaiah 53.6, Romans 6.23, Hebrews 9.27, Romans 5.8, 1 Peter 3.18, Ephesians 2.8-9, Titus 3.5, Romans 1.12, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, John 5.24 and 1 John 5. 12 verses these guys have just worked through memorizing. And in that process, we've been talking about sharing our faith with people. Sharing the gospel, because all of those verses are about sharing the gospel. And this week we sat down and we began to just map it out and walk through these verses and talk about, about God's plan for man. Talk about the human problem, the human condition of sin. Talked about God's remedy in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And talk about the need for the human heart to respond to the gospel. And we were just doing it in this little diagram on a piece of paper. And we were having a great time. And one of the guys, after we had done, we were done and just laid it out. He, he said this, can, can, can I take that paper? Can I have that? Can I have that little gospel presentation just for myself to, to hang on to? Why? Because he didn't understand the gospel? No. But because the gospel is simple and it is so profound that it blows your mind. Amen? It blows your mind. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the perfect fit for the human condition. And Paul was afraid that the church would be seduced satanically with thoughts that would lead them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so Paul pulls out this perfect example from the book of Genesis to illustrate this point. Eve deceived by the serpent. It's the perfect example because we know Eve was married to Adam. 
And the scripture tells us that Jesus is the second Adam and that the church is his bride. Therefore, Eve is a picture of the church of Christ. The scripture tells us that as in Adam all sinned and all shall die, so in Christ, the second Adam, all shall be made alive. Jesus is the second Adam. And the church is his bride. And therefore, the church is always in danger of playing the role of Eve in a satanic seduction. To be deceived by the serpent. How was Eve seduced? By this lie. By a twisting of God's word that she might have the potential to be more spiritual. By the lie that God was holding out on her that she could be more good or more spiritual. As if walking with God in the cool of the garden every day wasn't enough. And this is the game of false teachers and it is the lie of Satan. The teaching, you know, they might have said, maybe they were saying about Paul, the teaching is too simple and there's something deeper that we need to explore to know the reality of the gospel. See, Satan works so that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity of the gospel. And the danger that concerned Paul was, was not moral corruption. Paul was not worried about moral corruption, interesting, as he wrote to this church, but he was worried about an intellectual deception that would lead them away from Christ, that would lead them to a spiritual apostasy. What was prompting Paul's divine, divine jealousy? He says, fear. I am afraid. Based on the evidence that I see, I am worried that you are going to be seduced and you are going to lose the single-minded devotion and faithfulness to Christ that you have had. Paul was afraid. Seized with alarm. Startled by what he was seeing. And although the church had been infiltrated, Paul identified the person behind the peril was actually Satan. Pictured as he was in Genesis. As a cunning serpent. Where does the serpent focus his attention? On the mind. He goes after our minds. He goes after our intellects. Eve, did God really say? He, he, he started with questioning God's word. And then giving his own word. Surely, Eve, you won't die if you eat of the knowledge, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan questions God's word and then he substitutes in his own. And the serpent is crafty and he is cunning. He is an imitator. He copies what God does. And then he tries to convince us that what he is offering is better. And it's all an attempt to lead God's people away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So I would say this as we go through this. Heads up, church. When ministers add things to the simplicity of the gospel... That is the work of the legalist. That is the work of the Judaizer. That is the work of the false teacher. To add anything to the gospel. You need to do this. Or you need to do that. As though the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was not enough. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. 
simplicity and pure devotion to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you have received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now Satan, you know, is, has a, he has a counterfeit gospel. It involves a different savior. It involves a different spirit. But there is only one gospel and there is only one savior and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And different teachers may present to you a gospel that is some sort of mixture of law and grace or this or that, but it is no gospel at all. For we are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And when you entrust your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God will give to you his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who will dwell and live in you. And you know, if, if I or anyone ever seeks to add to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't put up with it. Don't let any teaching rob you of your sincerity and your purity in your devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul said this in verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least, am, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, these false teachers in Corinth, one of the things that they were claiming was that they were super apostles. I guess they had a big A on their chest or something. But it's interesting, you know, that they claim this, and what do we see Paul claimed about himself in other places in Scripture? Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul said, I'm the least of all the apostles. Different attitude that this man, he was not less than these leaders because they were, they were pseudo-spiritual teachers. Verse 6, he says this, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. You know, to me, it's amazing to think this, but Paul was not a smooth, schmoozy preacher. He had knowledge, no doubt about it. He, he was better schooled than any of the apostles. Uh, Paul had a brilliant mind. But we see over and over again in scripture that the man had a reputation for being a little bit rough with his speech, not being polished. Just read any one of his writings and you'll, you'll see that no one writes a run-on sentence like Paul. I mean, unbelievable. And so what did these teachers do? They, they attacked his, the skill of his speaking they attacked, they questioned his love for the church. But Paul sought to make the gospel clear to everyone. He says in verse 7, they attacked him for something else. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? You know, the false teachers, the guys with the big A's on their chest, the super apostles, were charging big money for preaching the gospel. Big money for their speaking fees, exorbitant fees, making themselves wealthy on the gospel. And Paul, on the other hand, did something amazing amongst the Corinthians. He preached free of charge. He, he, he paid his way with his own hands and by gifts from, from other churches. And so he asks, is it because I didn't fleece the flock? Is it because I didn't line my wallet that you're questioning me, that you're treating me this way? He says in verse 8, 
I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and I and will refrain from burdening you in any way. He says, look, others supported me so that I would not be a burden to you. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And so Paul is saying this, look, I didn't take a penny from you and I'm going to, Continue to boast of that and I'm going to continue to remind you that I've taught the gospel free of charge. Verse 11, he says, and why? Because I do not love you. And sorry, because, because I do not love you, God knows that I do. Essentially, you know, the Corinthians were saying this. You know, if Paul really loved us, he'd charge us. <laughs> you know, that's basically what they're saying. Look at these guys. They, they take all our money. <laughs> Why doesn't Paul do that? And so for clarity, he says, look, I love you. God knows I do. God knows that I do. Verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. You know, Paul's just daring the false teachers. Cut your rates. Follow my lead. Work for nothing and support yourself like I do. That was his challenge to the Corinthian teachers. I, I, I read something that from John Corson, and I just thought it was good, and I want to read back to you because he kind of shared a testimony in some of the reading that I was doing this week, and he said this. There have been times in this ministry, speaking of his own church, when we didn't have the money to support the ministers, including myself. And it's really interesting to see what happens. Some keep serving and teaching and working and doing whatever they're called to do. Others fade away. Jesus called them hirelings. I believe God almost always allows men to be tested in this way. To allow them to see if what they are doing is merely a job or truly a calling on their life. Something they would do whether they were supported financially or not. That was Paul. A true calling a true apostle, a man who truly loved this church, even though these false teachers were making all sorts of accusations against them. And so Paul identifies them for what they are. Check out verse 13. We'll read till the end of 15 here and then we'll get you out of here. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You know, amazingly, three times in those verses, Paul uses the word disguise to describe these teachers. Literally, masquerade. Put the mask on. And play the part. It changed the outside without changing the heart on the inside. You know, we should never ever be surprised that, that false teachers would live righteously, that false teachers would preach morality, that false teachers would promote family or, or marriage or Christian values. They put the mask on. And I find it striking in this passage that 
that Satan was first described as a cunning serpent, but then he is described as an angel of light. His two moves, to deceive the mind and then pretend that he is righteous. You know, Satan can appear as an angel of light. And likewise, false teachers can appear as being good. And it is a foolish thing when we rely on outward appearances, when we rely on personality, when we re rely on image. Because human beings are taken in easily by those things. Image and outward appearance and personality. You know, God forbid if Satan was to come into the room and he came in here, would he come in slithering in as a cunning serpent? Unlikely. More than likely, he would come in as an angel of light. So beautiful, so amazing that we would be tempted to bow down and worship him. And so Paul is telling this church, quit judging by mere appearances and make right judgments. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He clothes himself in righteousness. You know, as I was thinking about this, my mind went to John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, where a crowd came to Jesus and they said this, what must we do to do the work of God? What does God require of us, Jesus? What is God asking of us? What must we do? And Jesus said this, the work of God is one thing. The work of God is one thing that you believe on him whom the Father sent. That you believe on him whom the Father sent. See, the work of God is simple and the work of God is singular. It's Jesus Christ. To simply believe in Jesus Christ whom the Father sent. And when we add anything or take anything away, we step into dangerous places. Paul's heart for this church to guard the simplicity of their devotion to Christ. Let's pray. Jerry, come on up here. Jesus, this morning, we thank you. We just thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you shed your blood and your blood is enough. I thank you, Jesus, that the gospel is enough. I thank you that you are the living son of God raised from the dead. And Jesus, we know that you are jealous for the devotion and purity of our hearts. We are your church. We are your people. And Lord, this morning I ask that in every one of our hearts, you would just root out anything, Jesus, that would divide our loyalty. This morning, Jesus, is, as we sang a little earlier, we surrender to you today, again, afresh and anew. Today, Lord, this day of salvation, we choose you. And we pray, Jesus, that you would keep our hearts in this place of simplicity and purity in our devotion to you. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen.